Welcome to the Grace Long Beach Podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is 2 John. From the elder to the chosen gentlewoman and her children, whom I truly love, and I am not the only one, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus, the Son of the Father, will be ours who live in truth and love. I was overjoyed to find some of your children living in the truth, just as we had been commanded by the Father. Now, dear friends, I am requesting that we love each other. It is not as though I am writing a new command to you, but it's one we have had from the beginning. This is love, that we live according to his commands. This is the command that you heard from the beginning. Live in love. Many deceivers have gone into the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ came as a human being. This kind of person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you do not lose what we've worked for, but instead receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not continue in the teaching about Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in this teaching has both the Father and the Son. Whoever comes to you who does not affirm this teaching should neither be received nor welcomed into your home, because welcoming people like that is the same as sharing in their evil actions. I have a lot to tell you. I don't want to use paper and ink, but I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy will be complete. Your chosen sister's children greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. The poet Robert Frost was 80 years old when an interviewer asked him, in all of your years and in all of your travels, what is, what is the most important thing you've learned about life? And Robert Frost paused and reportedly had a twinkle in his eye when he said, in three words, I can sum up everything important that I've learned about life. It goes on. (laughs) This was 1954, not long after World War II, so that's a somewhat hopeful answer. I wonder what would happen if we asked the elder who wrote Second John, in, in all, a similar question, in all your years of living, what is the most important thing you've learned about life with God? And I think he would say with the, the same kind of twinkle in his eye, in three words I can sum up everything important I've learned about life with God, truth and love. The whole of our lives with God can be summed up in these three little words, truth and love. 
They're the reality that we're born into. Truth and love encircle us. They surround us. If you're in Christ, you can't really get out of truth and love. And so these three little words from this little neglected letter in the hinterlands of the New Testament tell us actually everything we need to know about our lives with God and God's life with us. I want to explore those three words with you this morning. And if you would, open a Bible to Second John, uh, which in the Bible underneath your seat is on page 1025. It takes up a whopping half page. It's the second shortest letter in the New Testament. The shortest is Third John. The first word I want to look at with you is truth. Truth is is God's promise to us. Truth is God's uh, gift to us. It it comes to us from God and will be with us forever. If you look at verse 1, the elder tells the church, the elect lady is is the church. Um, He tells the church, I love you in truth. And then he says, actually, it's not only myself. Everyone who knows the truth loves you. And then he explains why he can say that. If you look at verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And that way of talking about the truth is actually really profound to me. It's the truth that abides in us and, and will be with us forever. Um, And actually, this is is very personal for me because I've spent my whole adult life uh, making great efforts to put myself in the way of truth. I've um, studied and and prayed and given so much time and energy to that. And um, the problem is that I feel like with all that work, I haven't quite gotten there yet. I I thought I'd be further along by now. Um, But it just feels like Um, the truth about God and the truth about humanity and and my location in all of that is is still, it eludes me. Uh, There's still mystery that I'm pressing into there. And that's why it's so meaningful for me to hear these words. The truth abides in us. It will be with us forever. It means that the burden of discovering truth is not something that we actually bear. Uh, Getting the truth about God and humanity doesn't come from human striving or or great intellectual feats. The elder tells us that actually we don't go to truth. The truth comes to us. It lives in us. Actually, it will be with us forever. One of my favorite Christian authors puts it this way, Soren Kierkegaard. uh, First slide, please. He says, uh, the truth is a trap. You cannot have it without being caught. You cannot have the truth in such a way that you catch it, but only in such a way that it catches you. I love that. So no, um, I haven't grasped the truth yet in all its fullness. Uh, I have not yet arrived. Um, And perhaps you feel the same way. Uh, Perhaps you have some bewilderment about what really is true. 
um, you haven't quite gotten it yet. Um, perhaps you're unsure of yourself because you've changed your mind about things that you used to regard as true. Um, or you're worried to talk with people about what you think is true about God because uh, you would feel like you need to defend it. And then, into all this anxiety and striving and questioning, um, God tells us that actually the truth already abides with you. And actually it will be with you always. Um, we are already seized by truth. Um, uh, my doctoral mentor, Marianne My Thompson, uh, puts it this way. She says, we think of truth as something that depends upon us to preserve it. In reality, we depend on the truth to guard us because we depend upon God. This is a key piece for me, I think. Only as the truth abides in us do we abide in the truth. Only as the truth abides in us do we abide in the truth. But we're somewhat too quick to reverse that relationship and put human beings in the place where God's activity and power belong. So truth is God's promise to us. We have no need to defend it. We just need to enjoy it. We need to live in it. We can be confident in truth because we're confident in God. That's the first word. The second of the three words is love. It's actually and, but we're going to do love. Um, <laughs> love is uh, the practice of care for others in such a way that brings glory to God. Um, the elder answers the question in this letter, what is love? And he does so unironically. Um, it's not baby, don't hurt me. That's spoiler alert. <laughs> the elder says, love is the commandment that the Father gives us. Love is the commandment that actually we've had from the beginning. It's the commandment that fills all the commandments. When, when we observe love, we're doing all that God requires of us. Now, um, look at verse 6, if you would, with me. And this is where he defines love. He says, and this is love that we walk according to his, according to God's commandments. And this is the commandment. Notice the change from plural commandments to singular definite, the commandment. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it, that is, to walk in love. Um, the shift from commandments to commandments suggests to me that any time we practice the one commandment to love, what we're actually doing is all that God requires for us. And every time we press into observing particular commands that God gives to us, uh, remember the poor, don't neglect the fellowship, we're pressing into the love that God would have us um, show to one another. Now, um, what is love? You, you all know now. You don't need to be so mystified. Uh, if somebody says, what is love really? You can say, well, it's the commandment, of course. Uh, it's the duty. And um, the problem with that, though, is it's, it's not a very romantic view of love. Um, love is a commandment. It's, it's not something that you would tell somebody, for example, if you're 
on your second date with her at Alta Cafe after just reading Soren Kierkegaard's Works of Love. Um, and if that seems oddly specific, um, I admit that I might be talking about a friend. This is true. Uh, sometimes my wife will bat her eyelashes at me and um, look at me with her beautiful eyes and ask gently, uh, why do you love me? And in that tender moment, I will quote the words of our Lord and say, because you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> and you, my darling, are my neighbor. Of course, when I say that, I'm being very playful. Um, but here's the thing, actually, that I think is true about that. Uh, there's no reason for love outside of love. Uh, love can have no reason, uh, except that it is love. Uh, if I were to tell my wife, I love you because you're beautiful, then what would happen if she could somehow stop being beautiful to me? I find that very unlikely. but. Um, you, you get the point. The neighborly love that I have for my wife is uh, very particular. It takes the form of the vows we've made for each other. It's the kind of love I don't share with anybody else. But here's the profound thing. Um, that love is a commandment means when I love my wife, I am practicing obedience to God. Um, and the same goes for anyone else. When I practice love toward family or friends or colleagues or baristas or whoever, and you all are included in the family and friends portion of that, um, I'm observing the commandment of God. And so whether I love somebody is not a choice I make based on my preferences about people. It's the commandment we've had from the beginning. Perhaps it's what you've had from the beginning of your Christian life or just the beginning of your life. The command is this. We love one another. We love one another. Here, we love one another. So love is not simply a deep feeling, although deep feelings can come when you really practice it love enough. Uh, more than anything else, Love is practice in caring for others in such a way that brings glory to God. I think that's really important, so I'm going to say it again. Love is practice in caring for others in such a way that brings glory to God. What that means is that you don't need to understand your life primarily in terms of good or bad, whether you're good enough, whether you're measuring up. It means you can understand your entire life as vocation, as response to God's calling. Actually, there's no part of your life that you can't return to God with glory because there's no part of your life where you don't have the opportunity to practice love for others, to practice care for others. Uh, this is a gift of, of creaturely entanglement, which is a weird phrase, and that's why I like it. Um, I, uh, by creaturely entanglement, I mean that we can't actually live without each other. 
And we can't live without creation, and certainly we can't live without God. Our lives are, are so entangled together um, that I can never live only on my own. And that means um, there's always the possibility of practicing love for others. When I do dishes or cook or even commute, um, I can practice love for others. So no matter how mundane your life is week to week, your life can bring glory to God. God sees you and knows you. He sees the love that you have for people. And here, too, we need to depend on God. Um, And here, too, we're met by God's promise. Because the same God who commands us to love also gives us the strength we need to love the people he's put in our lives. We love one another, and love is from God. So, that's two words that sum up almost our whole lives with God. Truth, love. The third word is and. We need truth and love. You can't have one without the other. You can't have love without truth. And you can't have truth without love, because together they are our whole lives before God. And you see this in the way the elder pairs together truth with love over and over. Um, He says, I love in truth, verse 1. Verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us in truth and love. Or verse 4 and 6, you see a parallel. We are to walk in truth and we are to walk in it. That is in the commandment. That is in love. Um, John, John's writing can be difficult sometimes. So what does this mean about truth if it can't be separated from love? Well, it means that truth is not something that you just believe. It's, it's not just an object that you know. Um, truth is something that you live. And the way that you live truth is through love. So the conviction that, that truth comes from God uh, won't be worked out in arrogance in your life, as though you really hear from God and other people don't. Instead, truth will be worked out in loving care for others in a way that brings glory to God. Uh, you've been seized by truth, and having been seized by truth, God will set you to work at love. Are you with me? This is like a, you know, this is important stuff. What does it mean for love? It means that your love will be true. It won't be sappy. It won't be sentimental. Your love won't become distorted or damaging, as love sometimes does. Uh, C.S. Lewis speaks um, in one of his works about a woman whose love became distorted. He said... uh, She's the sort of woman who lives for others. You can always tell the others by their hunted look. So there's no truth without love. There's no love without truth. And that's why some of the most powerful encounters you will ever have with another person is when you feel like they really come to know the truth about you. And you know they still love you. To be known and loved. 
That's what true friendship is. That's what life in truth and love looks like, to know the truth about others and still to love them there. Also, to have the truth known about yourself and still to be held in love. And John says, the elder says, that that's what we can be to one another. A community held by truth and love and a community that holds truth and love for one another. Actually, what the elder says is is not just that that can be the case. He just proclaims that it is the present reality. This is really remarkable. It's astonishing, um, really. When we read the first six verses of this letter, we aren't told that we need to be more truthful. We aren't told that we need to really try to love each other more. There's not a single command uh, in those verses in the form of an imperative. It's just present reality. God has given us truth and love. They, these things encircle our lives. If you're in Christ, you can't get out of truth and love. I find that just astonishing. It's not aspiration, it's reality. But that doesn't mean that we're to be passive. We need to put ourselves in the way of truth, in the way of love. And that's why John says we need to walk in them, to walk in truth, walk in love. Two quick anecdotes on love and truth. Um, The first is is about a North African theologian who wrote in the fourth century. Uh, That's a photograph of him. Um, He said, if someone thinks that they understand scripture, but it doesn't lead them to the double love of God and neighbor, then they really haven't understood scripture. That is, you can't actually receive the truth that God has for you in Scripture without also receiving its intention to free you to love, to free you to love God and free you to love others. This is a community of people that is very thoughtful in our approach to Christianity, and I want that to be the case. I want you to ask good questions, to think carefully, uh, to engage in conversation with one another, always to try to learn more about who God is and who we are in relation to God and how that informs and enlightens how you're supposed to live in a very complicated world. But if you do that without love, without the intention of coming to love others more, without coming to love God more, then you haven't understood anything, is what Augustine would say to us. Fast forward 1,600 years to a 20th century Swiss-German theologian. Uh, He preached a sermon in his university's chapel, and the sermon was very dense and very theological. And uh, after he was done, one of his colleagues, who was an astronomer, uh, came up to him, and he said, you know, yeah, that was was a, a great sermon and all, but really isn't everything just about trying to love God and love others? To which the theologian said, well, yes, just like astronomy is really about twinkle, twinkle, little star. (laughs) 
Funkel, Funkel, Klein astern. Uh, we um, can seek to love God and others, but we need to do so in a way that is full of wisdom, full of knowledge, so that our love for others doesn't become distorted, um, so that it's a kind of love that brings people to God. So there, there it is. There's the three words that sum up everything about our lives with God. Truth and love. Love and truth. It's a divine reality that encircles us. We can't get out of it. Now, all this is wonderful. I wish I could end the sermon. But there's a sharp change in mood and message about halfway through this letter. The elder changes from speaking about truth and love to speaking about their opposites, speaking about deception and evil. Look at verse 7, if you would. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. This language is really severe. You aren't left guessing what John thinks about these people. And his instructions for how to respond when when such a person comes to you seem equally severe. Verse 8, watch yourselves, watch out, be on guard. Verse 10, don't welcome them into your home. Don't even say hello to them, lest you share in their evil works. And so you might wonder, as I have, uh, how does this really severe language, and um, what, the nicest way to put it would be encouragement to impolite behavior, um, how does that square with the truth and love that encircles our lives? Uh, what, what is going on here? To work this out, I, th- I think we need to understand who the elder has in view, um, who he is and is not talking about when he talks about deceivers, antichrists, and evildoers. Um, so first, who he's not talking about. He's not talking about people in general. Uh, he doesn't have a view that all humans are like that. Um, Uh, And he's not talking about people who have not yet encountered the truth and love that Jesus Christ offers. Um, And we know that because to such people, John would have us bear joyful witness um, to show truth and love. It's not non-believers in general or people who aren't Christians. Um, Elsewhere, John talks about uh, this group having gone out from us but never really being a part of us. Um, And so you might think, well, is he talking about people who are Christians and are no longer Christians? I don't think so. Uh, Not exactly. It's not Christians who struggle with doubt or sin. Uh, The language is just too harsh for that. Struggling with faith or struggling with doubt doesn't make you a deceiver. Um, Having sin doesn't make you an evildoer. Um, For our friends who are struggling with faith, we need to be with them. We need to carry them along in truth and love when they can't see it themselves. We need to pray for them, to move toward them, 
to show them in, in our lives, in our gentle words, that God really knows them and God really loves them. He has and will redeem them. The deceivers, antichrists, and evildoers are people, uh, it seems to me, who once were Christians but have since enlisted Christ toward inhuman and horrific ends. Um, now, we, we don't know exactly what the elders' historical situation was. Uh, we just we can't know that. Um, but it must have been dire. I think that he's using such severe language about these people. Um, and notice language that's exactly the opposite of truth and love in order to differentiate them from those who are truly Christians. In other words, he would say not everyone who says they're a Christian really is a Christian. And we need to be really clear about when that's the case. So uh, at this point, a contemporary analogy might be illuminating. Uh, There are, in our country, uh, white supremacist groups that claim to be Christian, the Christian Identity Movement, for example, or the KKK. And those groups identify white supremacy as the rightful expression of Christianity. I think, so think of something like that. Um, And I think the tone of 2 John is something along these lines. He says, I'm not concerned that any of you are part of these movements or will be part of these movements. But I don't want anyone to be confused about what Christianity is, what the truth and love of Christ entail. That is not Christianity. That is deceit. It's evil doing. Think about all the humanity and glory of Jesus Christ, and then take the opposite of that. You get the Antichrist. It's not just a matter of white supremacy being sinful and evil, although, of course, it is. What you see in verse 7, it's it's that such people have denied the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh because they've denied that he gives his flesh for all humanity. Um, By the way, gives his Jewish flesh for all humanity. And in verse 8, John tells us that such people are closer to destroying themselves and others than you could possibly imagine. And that's why he asks his community to simply have nothing to do with such people. Um, Don't be hostile toward them. Uh, You aren't going out to them to correct them. What's in view is them coming to you. And when they do, don't associate with them at all. Um, He doesn't want people to mistake the truth and love that come from Jesus with deceit and evil done in Jesus' name. Does that make sense? Are you with me, sort of? It's really heavy, I know, but uh, you work with what you got, right? (laughs) Christ can't be joined to the demonic. That's what's going on. It's matter and antimatter. It's just, it's not possible. Um, so not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. You can be confident in, in saying that. Um, but what's most important for John, what's most pressing, is not what we are against. 
It's what we are, a community encircled by God's truth and love. In the end, what what these deceivers deny is, is what we've come most to cherish, that Jesus Christ comes in the flesh. We see Jesus Christ come in the flesh with the woman at the well. He tells her the truth about her life, the truth about all that she's ever done, and still moves toward her in love in a way that opens her up to the world and to joy. Or we see Jesus come in the flesh when he approaches the man born blind and gives him sight. And when his eyes are open and he sees who Jesus is, he turns to God in love and worship through Jesus. More than anywhere else, we see Jesus come in the flesh when he gives his flesh for the life of the world, when he gives his body over for us on the cross so that we can be surrounded by the truth and love that come from God. All along, Jesus is the truth that has come to abide in us and will be with us forever. And Jesus is the love that brings us to God with glory. All along, the reality of truth and love encircling our lives has been called by another name, and that name is Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God.